You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan. In Stouffville. In Woodbridge. In Unionville. This is the feed on 1059 The Region. I'm Ann Romer with York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. The restrictions of the past seven weeks have been incredibly difficult on people and businesses. This past Monday, a three-stage framework about reopening Ontario's economy was unveiled, but without a timeline. By Friday, the government announced that certain businesses were allowed to reopen as of Monday. So how did we get here? One of the architects of the reentry plan is Finance Minister Rod Phillips. Thanks for joining us. And it's great to be with you. So how did you come up with this framework? And it was combining the very good advice that we've been getting from our public health officials, from scientists, uh, from, from, our, from our health professionals, um, with what we all uh, know is the imperative to try to get the economy um, back up and operating at, at the level we'd like, to, we'd like to see. Have you been looking at other provinces or other countries for ideas on this? We have, of course, many countries, uh, particularly in Europe and Asia, have been through um, what we're currently going through. We are still in the the phase where we are dealing with with the pandemic, but we were able to look to some places like Germany and other places that have come through this and what's worked, um, as well looking to places like South Korea and others, although they had a slightly less intense experience of COVID-19. So looking around the world and then, of course, watching what's happening in jurisdictions both south of the border and other provinces. And you also are trying to communicate with small businesses. I know that a new website was announced earlier in the week by your government, uh, tackling the barriers. You want to hear from businesses. You're you're open to ideas for overcoming challenges created by COVID-19. And we absolutely know that businesses, particularly small businesses, but also the other businesses, have, have are doing good work at thinking about how we can best make sure that their customers can be safe, that their employees can be safe. We're also seeing further guidance from our Ministry of Labor about what's going to be required so that these businesses can do this in a in a in a safe way. And and we're open to learning. One of the things that we've had operating through this uh, through this uh, crisis has been the LCBO, which, as you know, is owned by the government. So we've been very closely working with the LCBO what's been working. They have large retail outlets, small retail outlets, they have rural uh, locations, urban locations, they have warehouses, they have deliveries. These are all things we've been learning from so that we can make sure that when we start to open up in a safe way, we're taking advantage of all that learning. I get the sense you're trying to develop a plan for Ontario to emerge maybe stronger than ever. Is that realistic? Well, I think, I think you're right, and it's important that we be transparent about the situation. Uh, some people have compared this to SARS, and there is a certain comparison, but there's one difference. Uh, I think with the cooperation of 14.5 million Ontarians, and particularly our businesses and, and others, we will come out of this well, and, 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 and we, will, we, will, we will do a good job. But unlike SARS, which was really something that happened in the greater Toronto area and in Hong Kong, this pandemic, this economic crisis is global. 
and worldwide. So Ontario, we will hope, as it opens for business safely, will be emerging into an economy uh, broadly, globally, that has challenges as well. So we have to be realistic about that, but we can control what we can control. Uh, we're working as well with uh, cross-border partners because obviously supply chains in the United States are important, and so there's a group of Midwest states as well as Northeastern states uh, that'll be vital in terms of so much of the business that goes back and forth across the border once it's safe to do so. You are not only the Minister of Finance, you're also the chair of the Ontario Jobs and Recovery Committee. So what is the committee's mandate? So the Premier has asked us to look to the kind of discussions we need to have with business, with communities, about what we need to do, not just to reopen the economy, but really to see the recovery happen. So uh, my, I have a, a group of ministers, a large group of my cabinet colleagues, represent all aspects of the economy who have set up stakeholder tables. They're working with those tables. We're also going to be coordinating a consultation for every MPP, opposition, as well as government MPPs, to get feedback from their communities, as well as working with you know various other sectors, uh, important groups, whether it's religious leaders or working with labor leaders or others, uh, to make sure that we are getting the information we need about the recovery phase. So we think about this right now. We're in the protect phase, trying to get through this pandemic. We're going to go through a reopening phase. But we are also going to want to, to recover the economy. And we need to know what investments we need to make, how we can continue to work with other levels of government. Uh, so that's the purpose of the committee. I have, uh, as you would remember, we didn't have a full budget. We had a one-year budget, which was because we wanted to bring the finances up to date, but we didn't have all the information we needed for a multi-year budget. I have committed to have a full budget by November 15th and at that point we'll be able to take all that information and put it together so that we can do the best plan we can for the future. Well just for fun let's uh, you and I look ahead to the fall. Where do you see Ontario? Well, I mean, we would all hope that we would be, be through uh, certainly this first wave of, uh, of COVID-19. And listen, the, the information we're getting about caseloads and others tells us that we're pointing in the right direction. Uh, but, Anne, it's very, very difficult to say. Things are changing week to week and, and month to month. But our, ideally, we will be in a situation where we can have a, a longer-term view. I have to say a lot of my optimism comes from three things. You know, Every day we get better at, from a health perspective in terms of what our great health professionals are doing. Doing to protect people. The science is really making progress on a second front. So we are, we are getting, you know, some of the smartest people in the world are, are thinking about whether it's antivirals or, or a vaccine um, or what we need to do to, to protect ourselves. And we're learning here in Ontario, we're learning how to make some of the things that we haven't made in a while again, whether that's PPE or, or ventilators. Uh, but we're also learning how to operate businesses and operate each, around each other in a safe way. So we're getting smarter and better every day as we go through this, and I hope by the fall that that you know, can be wrapped up into to a, a much more positive environment we're in than now. But I don't want to understate the challenges. You know, we're still in the middle of this health crisis. As I say, I'm not sure if we're in the first period or the third period of the hockey game, but we're, we're, we're not through it yet, and we're going to need everybody to keep cooperating, the physical distancing, the, the hand washing, all the things people have been doing. One can only hope for a hat trick on this one. <laughs> what do you say to small businesses in Ontario, and I'm going to turn the focus on York Region, which is what 105.9 The Region, this radio station, is all about. It's the listeners, it's the, the people, the community, those who live and love and work in York Region. What do you say to small business owners who may be taking their last breath of air in terms of being able to stay afloat? And I mean, first of all, to small businesses and, of course, to everybody, I say thank you because people have responded to what was necessary because of this 
health crisis, and they really have done their very best. In terms of the supports that we've been able to provide, whether it was reducing the electricity rates or the rent subsidy program or some of the things the federal government has done that uh, have provided support, whether it's the access to small business loans um, or support for payroll, you know, these are all the supports that have been put in place, and, and I didn't list them all, um, to try to, to make sure that our small business community is able to, to survive through this. But I wouldn't want any of them. I, I'm from Durham, I mean, we have a very similar sort of small business community. They're really at the heart and soul of, uh, of the region, and I know that's true in York as well. And so we appreciate the challenges they're facing, uh, the supports and services. We're trying to work through all of my colleagues to make sure that they have access to them, as well as the federal government and municipal governments. You know, done things like defer property taxes, where we've deferred other taxes and, and WSIB uh, costs for them. Um, but, but, you know, there is light at the end of the tunnel. We just have to keep doing what we're doing, and we have to be really good at communicating through this challenging time. So we try to do that better and better each day. You know, I hearken back to some Ontario license plate slogans from the past, uh, a place to grow, yours to discover, open for business. What will the new look license plate slogan be for Ontario once this is in the rearview mirror? And that's a great question, and I, I, I'm going to I'm going to leave it to you know the, the if you you should have a listener poll on that and see what they uh, what they think. I think that's a, that's a great question to ask. I I think the the idea we want to be doing is is looking looking through the front windshield, looking forward. Um, you know, there's going to be lots to learn from this uh, this crisis. There's going to be lots to learn about how we were able to handle the the pandemic. Certainly, the things that happened in our long term care s- system and are happening now. There are going to be things to learn from there. What we need to make sure that this uh, province can deliver for itself, because as the premier said, we never again want to be caught in a situation where we don't have access to the kind of protective equipment or or, or medicines that are necessary. So I think there's going to be a lot to learn. But I I'm I'm going to be looking forward to looking forward at <laughs> what we uh, what we have to uh, have to do. Well put. Ontario's Minister of Finance, Rod Phillips, thank you for joining us on the feed. Take care. Thank you, Ann. Next on the feed, COVID-19 and your mental health. A recent Angus Reid poll showed that half of Canadians asked say that their mental health is deteriorating because of COVID-19. They're worried. They're anxious. They're bored. Some even said they were grateful. Let's uh, talk about this and open up the line of discussion with MPP Michael Cibolo, representing the riding of Vaughan Woodbridge, Associate Minister of Mental Health and Addictions. Thank you for joining us on the feed. Well, then, it's a pleasure to be uh, with you today. Mental Health Week starts on Monday. Their slogan this year is, let's get real about how we really feel. How do you really feel about mental health? Well, I think uh, it's now long overdue, the fact that we do speak uh, about it more openly than we did in the past. Uh, there's always been a stigma attached to it, and uh, I love the work that's being done to make sure that people understand that you can't be healthy physically if you're not healthy mentally. COVID-19 is presenting a great uh, number of problems for a great number of people, including uh, deteriorating mental health. What is your suggestion as Associate Minister of Mental Health and Addictions that people might think about or reach out to for help during this incredibly stressful time? Uh, and, and again, uh, I, I heard mention of the Angus Reid poll. We've been tracking data from the beginning to see how this has impacted on individuals. And while we were working and have been working really hard to 
bend the curve with respect to positive uh, result test results for COVID-19, um, we realized that we needed to do more. We've invested another $12 billion in helplines uh, to ensure that people have the opportunity, if they feel they need the help, to contact. So there's Connects Ontario, there's a kids' help phone line, bounce back for kids uh, or for individuals over the age of 15, and there's a post-secondary student line uh, and text messaging uh, system uh, good to talk on that, that we have as well. Um, my advice for individuals is, uh, you know, we're forced to be socially isolated. That doesn't mean, or, or physically isolated, that doesn't mean we have to be socially isolated. Um, you know, I have concerns about our youth because uh, they're not getting to play with their friends and they're not having that social contact that's so much an important part of the development. I have concerns about our seniors that, uh, you know, have that social isolation leads to depression and anxiety. Uh, we have to stay socially connected, whether it's Facebook, uh, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, Zoom, whatever, the telephone, we have to stay socially connected in order to stay healthy. How do you encourage people to reach out for help? And in what way can they at this point when there is social distancing and physical distancing? Yeah, a lot of the help that uh, was available previously to individuals with face-to-face contact has come to an end because of the situation. But if you reach out to your doctor or to Connects Ontario, they will put you into contact with opportunities to get support services, um, whether it be, you know, by telephone or by uh, Zoom or by, there are methods that are being employed. And that's one of the reasons why we made the investment as a government, because we recognize that there would be a surge in terms of need for supports. And I, I quite frankly believe it's going to get worse before it gets better. Um, as we get into the economic phase now and try to restart our economy, there are going to be all kinds of concerns that we need to deal with. Help is out there for people that are listening. Uh, as I said, uh, if, you, if, you don't, if you can't find the numbers, you can go to the Ontario uh, uh, .ca coronavirus uh, website and you'll find the contacts there. Um, but there are supports and there are there is help for individuals. There has been a school of thought in years past and maybe even present that uh, drugs may uh, be helpful, but I know that you believe in what's called a social prescription. Can you expand on that? Yeah, I, I honestly believe that the what we need to do as a society is to turn to each other for more supports and more, uh, more uh, help. I, I don't believe that substances should be used as a way to cope in uh, situations where there is a need for help. The help comes from each other and reaching out to each other. And even though we have to maintain the physical distancing, we do have to stay socially connected and do things also to keep our minds active. Let me ask you a very frank question. Is there hope for people who are on the downslide in terms of their mental health in light of COVID-19 and just life's pressures uh, as they begin to build and, and even more so with this pandemic, is there hope? Absolutely. Absolutely there is. And hope is the, 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 the word that the, the, what makes us unique, being human beings, the fact that there always is hope. Uh, you know, I would listen to a young man who uh, has a neurodevelopmental disorder saying that he was lonely and he was depressed. And I said to him, you know what? Every time after a rain, there's a, there's the sun comes out. Every time after winter, you know, spring comes along and we start to see the renewal of life. It happens uh, in every aspect of nature, and that includes our human nature. What we need to do is we need to stay focused on positive things. So I, I tell people all the time, 
listen to the, um, the news, but don't let it become your day. Um, keep to a routine. Create a routine. Things can't be the same as they were before, but you can maintain aspects of your, your life in a routine way. Uh, uh, create those situations. Um, you know, uh, do some gardening. You can do that around the house. Bake bread. Bread has been found to be, baking bread has been found to be very therapeutic. Do things that, and experience things that perhaps you have to put on the back burner because we're so busy each day of our lives. The other thing too is talk to your kids, talk to your, your spouse, talk to your partner. These are opportunities that we may never get again. So in other words, look for the silver lining. You know, they are difficult times, but let's take the positives, even in such a negative situation, and build on that, and that will help build the resiliency we need and the hope we need that we're going to come through on the other side. And we will, definitely we will. What about our vulnerable population, those who are homeless, those who are poor, those who don't have a great deal uh, to look forward to, uh, our seniors who, as you mentioned earlier, are in many cases isolated and also in long-term care homes where the fatalities have been on the rise. How do we help those people who really don't have a lot to look forward to in life? Well, one of the good things about, uh, and there are many good things about our government, but one of the things that I'm very appreciative of is the fact that the Premier has charged me with the responsibility of dealing with mental health and addictions and looking at the vulnerable populations. So one of the things you've heard and uh, you've seen is that we're trying to ensure that there is housing supports uh, for individuals that, that are homeless. Um, when we roll out of this, we also have the roadmap to, to mental wellness, which was developed uh, just as COVID-19 hit, which meant that we weren't really able to roll it out as much as or as well as we wanted to. But in there, we've done everything from the standpoint of looking at the social determinants of mental health uh, or of health, and, and one of the things is housing, and another thing is education, and so we're looking to deal with those issues, and um, I, I see COVID-19 and what's happened as uh, pushing a restart or a reset button, and I'm hoping that with the ministry that I have and the work that I'm doing, together with my colleagues, because there's 16 ministries that are working together to deal with mental health and mental wellness, um, we will have a reset from all those different ministries and working together, be able to provide supports, you know, that haven't really existed in the past. Why do you care? Uh, You are working on your doctorate in clinical psychology. You are a certified addiction counselor. You uh, were a lawyer before you moved into politics. You know, you could simply have continued to ride the very strong wave that you created, but you are absolutely determined to make a difference. Why? I think everybody on this planet deserves a chance. Everyone should have the, um, the, the hope and the dreams of living a fulfilled life. And I saw in my practice, I saw in the, the, the volunteer work that I was doing, that a lot of people lose that hope or don't believe in the system anymore. And um, I wanted to come to change the system. I wanted to come and find ways to give people that hope and that second chance in life. And I've, you know, experienced now several people, you know, that, that were going to commit suicide, uh, that were depressed, that were at the end of their rope. But by giving them knowledge, by speaking with them, by helping them using evidence-based therapies, I was able to save some people's lives and it changed my life. There is more to life than just generating an income we have to give back. And I've, you know, for me, that's always been very important from when I was a young man. 
Um, and I figured this was the ultimate is to give back is to come and have, work with people that care and are compassionate and want to make a difference in the world. And I'm very privileged and honored to be in this, in the cabinet and be part of the government, especially at a time right now that I see as an opportunity to fix a lot of things. We're resetting the buttons everywhere in our judicial system, our healthcare system. And it's all because the modernization and the, and the, and, and the, 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 the systemic changes that we're making, a lot of it has to do with the fact that we've been forced to do it. So I'm privileged to be here and to serve the people of Ontario, and I will keep doing this uh, as long as I've got the strength to do it because everybody in our system deserves to have a life that's fulfilling and that gives them all the opportunities that, that are presented to perhaps not everyone in our society for a variety of reasons, but we have to work to change that. Michael Tabolo, representing the riding of Vaughan Woodbridge, Associate Minister of Mental Health and Addictions. Thank you for joining us on the feed. My pleasure, Anne, and stay safe. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Ann Romer. Mental health resources are also available from CMHA. Tina Cortez with those details. Dr. Deanne Sims is with the Canadian Mental Health Association, York and South Simcoe. Thank you for joining the show, Dr. Sims. Happy to be here. Can you tell us about the services CMHA provides? Yes, certainly. So at CMHA, York and South Simcoe, we are happy to provide quite a bit of online content we, on our website. We have some COVID-19 specific resources. Then we also provide telephone-based supportive counseling. And we also have free online and virtual mental health support through our Bounce Back program. In addition, we have our other pre-existing programs that are operating either remotely or through technology-enabled format over the course of the coronavirus pandemic. Now, are there services and programs available for everyone? Is it for specifically young people? Is it for seniors in our community? Um, We have programs for youth, for adults, for family and caregivers. Um, We offer a wide range of resources in our efforts to try to support everyone in whatever way possible in this really trying time. And you said it right there, trying time, very unusual days for sure. Can you talk a little bit about how the struggle, the mental health struggle, is different for young people as opposed to maybe the more mature members of our community? Certainly. So we know that As we said, this is an unprecedented time, Um, and depending on where folks are in their life course, they may be experiencing this time differently. So we know that school-age children uh, are not currently attending school. Some people might be attending courses online, but for the most part, they've really been removed from their social and learning environments. So it can also be difficult, depending on the age of the child, to understand what a pandemic is, what the coronavirus is, and why it is that life looks a little bit differently right now. For people who are in their teenage years or um, maybe more advanced in their schooling, this can also be a time where they are missing important milestones, graduation ceremonies. Um, completing the end of the school year, moving towards securing some kind of summer employment. It can really be a difficult 
time to understand the necessary shifts that are taking place in society, and it can be um, uh, an alarming and really disorienting time as as these teenagers and young people are really starting to develop their sense of self. And then, so how do we recognize then some of the signs of anxiety or depression when it comes to COVID-19? So certainly with children and adolescents, um, we might start to notice changes in their behavior. So um, increases in irritability, maybe more um, oppositional behavior or not necessarily following rules or directions or or getting along as as easily as they otherwise might be. You might also notice um, cheerfulness, um, uh, anger. There might be a bit of withdrawal where there's, uh, you know, more of a tendency to bury their face in phones or mobile devices or spend more time in their room than often. Um, It can look different for anyone of any age, but certainly for children and youth, parents and family members should just be on the lookout for um, real shifts in the ways that their young people are behaving. And I mean, certainly we're all adjusting to this new time, but if these changes are really sustained over the course of a couple of weeks, um, or if you notice that you know there might be changes to sleep or eating or regular routines and a lot of just shifts in behavior, then this might be a time where it would be appropriate to provide more supports or, or reach out to some formal contacts to help making sure that the young folks in our society uh, and people of all ages really are getting the support that they need in this really difficult time. So what advice do you have for us then specifically in terms of what can we do to help? What strategies what advice can you give us? What can we say? Because we may recognize the signs, but now what do we do? So certainly, um, initially, a lot of the advice that we were giving as mental health agencies and providers were around short-term ways to bolster mental and physical health. So things like making sure that people were getting regular physical activity, eating healthful, balanced meals, getting good quality of sleep, and limiting media exposure. And those are all still really important things to do. But as we shift from sort of short-term into more long-term strategies, as this lockdown continues to draw on, uh, it's a good time to really take stock of some of the ways that we've been helping ourselves or coping to see whether we might need to, to make some adjustments or some 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 modifications. And so while it's certainly important to continue to do all of those really basic things around self-care, it's also important to make sure that we are maintaining our social contacts, not just through technology, through video and phone calls, but also making sure that we're connecting with our communities around us. So if there are ways to volunteer, there are some online agencies that will connect people to volunteer opportunities remotely. If there are ways that you can share your skills or your hobbies with other people in your community in a way that's in keeping with some of the public health and safety directives, then these are some of the things that will actually start to um, enhance your coping over the next little while. Another important point that I think is uh, something that we need to have our eyes on is really shifting our expectations. 
So for those of us who are struggling to meet our basic needs, um, you know, like securing our financial resources, our food, our, our jobs, the health and safety of ourselves, that really needs to be the focus for a period of time. And while we're focused on that, we're not going to be living life in the way that we typically would. For people who are trying to work from home, we need to shift our expectations of our productivity while we focus on taking care of loved ones um, or parenting small children. And I think that we need to be gentle with ourselves and remind ourselves that we are in a very odd time in our lives. And so life is going to look a little bit different for everyone. And the people who we typically would reach out to for support are also in this very strange situation and might not be able to um, respond to our needs uh, in a way that they otherwise typically would. Now, you've obviously had to change the way you treat your patients currently. Do you anticipate that there will be a long-term change in how you treat patients? Um, I do. So I know that historically I have provided technology-mediated services in both public and private health settings. Um, But still the majority of work within the healthcare setting has been provided face-to-face. And there's certainly been benefits to this in terms of establishing a relationship, having um, human-to-human contact and being able to to work with people and see all of the verbal and nonverbal information that's being shared. However, um, it has created barriers for certain folks and people who live far away from some of the centers that I traditionally provided service in could spend large amounts of time or energy or money um, coming into some of the brick-and-mortar offices that I traditionally worked in. So while providing services over the phone or over the Internet might make healthcare look and feel different for a period of time, I'm really hopeful that there are ways that we can continue to extend our services in this way so that we really meet people where they're at and deliver healthcare when and where people need it most, which is in their home communities, in their home environments, in the real world. Yes, indeed. Dr. Sims, if you were to leave us with a takeaway from today's conversation about how to navigate the new normal, what would it be? It would really be adjusting our expectations and being gentle with ourselves while we really realize that we are living in a world Uh, that is unprecedented and unchartered. So we need to relax our ideas of what life looks like for a little bit for ourselves and for others around us while we really focus in on what matters most, which is our connections to ourselves and other people in our communities around us. That's great. Be gentle with ourselves. I like that. If our listeners want more information about CMHA, where can they get it? They can visit our website, which is cmha-yr.on.ca. And if they're interested in the Bounce Back program, which is our online and virtual mental health support program for people aged 15 and up, they can visit bouncebackontario.ca. Thank you for joining us on the feed, Dr. Sims. Thank you so very much.
This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Ann Romer. Jim Lang next with how Blue Door Shelters is supporting the homeless through this pandemic. While we deal with the COVID-19 situation, sometimes we are so wrapped up in our own little world, we're forgetting about those in need in our community. And those in need include the homeless and the vulnerable in York Region. To talk more about that and how we can do to help while we take care of ourselves, thrilled to be speaking to Michael Braithwaite, the CEO of the Blue Door Shelter. Michael, how are you? Well, you know, that's such a tough question to answer these days, but I, I count myself as very fortunate because uh, I am healthy, my family's healthy, and uh, I have a job. We're working hard. And, and that's kind of where I want to go with today is that we, we I, I think in the self-quarantining, the staying at home, and if you do work, you race right home. I think a lot of people have forgotten about those around us who need help, and we're seeing evidence of that in long-term care, but we're also, in some ways, we're forgetting about the homeless need our help, too. Well, yeah, you, you said something very critical there, Jim, in that we raise home. And when you think about it, we have, a, we have homes to raise home to, right? So we can self-isolate, so we can self-distance, so we can be safe with our families for up to 1,500 people, an estimated 1,500 people in the New York region who don't have a safe place to call home. It's very hard to, uh, to do that, that distancing. It's very hard to isolate. And it's very hard to stay healthy. So we work hard as long as well with our amazing partners at the region, 360 Kids, Salvation Army, Yellow Brick House, Sandgate, and many others, in from the cold, out from the cold. We're all working hard to make sure we continue to provide that real valuable service, but as safely as possible. So how do you exercise physical distancing while caring for those in need of Blue Door Shelter? Well, I, you know, we've had to be very creative and we've had to work with our clients and Listen, a lot of people who experience homelessness also have, uh, they're very resilient in that every day they're dealing with serious challenges and issues. So this is another one. And although they, you know, struggle with it, they're working with us on that. So you, you really have to look at, um, so for instance, at Blue Door, we had five rooms that were double occupancy. So we want single occupancy only so people can isolate in their own room. And then we set up the, the common spaces so people can distance. We've marked them so people can distance. Every one of the clients and staff uh, will wear masks, and the clients have been wonderful that way. And then we've, uh, so what we did at Blue Door as well, worked with our partners at the region, our family emergency housing program leader moved to a hotel, so we took a few more rooms there for some senior men, and that, so we're able to space people out and, and do that. Now we have a self-isolation space, for people that come into South Lake Hospital who might have who have been tested and might have symptoms, so they have a safe place to isolate in their room, and we have a staff team there as well as a, a nurse and um, PSW workers there, and that, that's been wonderful over the last month. I know this seems a silly question, but as the weather gets warmer, is there an opportunity maybe to create some temporary shelter, uh, some sort of a, like military-style tenting for people if there's overflow? Well, I, I think you, you can't take anything off the table, but I think... Now that here's the silver lining coming out of this is that I think everyone's understanding that housing is so critical to people staying healthy, right? Moving forward to working through this type of thing. So we have some wonderful folks at the United Way and some wonderful folks at the region. We've all come together. We have biweekly or sorry, we have uh, twice a week. Everyone in this sector in York region jumps on a call, including the police, paramedics, South Lake Hospital, all emergency providers, and we share Here's what the needs are. Uh, here's what we can do to help out. 
um, and, and people coming together, so meals and different things. But I think you'll, you'll be looking at things like hotels where people can isolate rooms where they have their own washroom they can use. Um, hopefully, you know, we, we want to stay away from bigger spaces where you just have, have hundreds of people in one room where they're still sharing washrooms and doing that. Um, and so the region, I think, in the next couple of weeks, will roll out some of their plans on how do we add those extra spaces. But here's the other thing, too, Jim, is that now is the perfect time, too, and we're doing a campaign. We want to we house 100 people in the next two months. And we had that out in the York Region Media News um, recently, and people will say, well, it's kind of odd during this time. But we have landlords who may not be able to rent their space, and we have lots of healthy individuals here who don't want to be in emergency housing, who would isolate better in their own space. The more people we can move out into affordable, supportive housing, and we offer supports once they leave, it doesn't end once they leave, the more capacity we can take on here. So it's a little bit of all these different things that we can do. But we want to stay away from, say, warehousing people just to keep them safe. Let's look at some great opportunities that can come out of this um, unfortunate situation. Speaking with Michael Braithwaite, the CEO of Blue Door Shelter. And Michael, the one thing I'm hearing from some people is while they're self-quarantining, they're they're reflecting, they're being forced to slow down because they're not caught up in the daily rat race. And they're saying, whoa, I didn't realize this was going on. And I didn't realize this was an issue. And maybe I do need to pay more attention to the homeless in the region and how we can help them. Absolutely. I mean, I think any time we have setbacks like this where we have self-reflection, and we see that, wow, and we're fortunate to have a safe place to call home. We're fortunate to have a government that supports us in these times. And you think about what about the most vulnerable who don't have that, right? And they reflect, they want to reach out. And they also feel a little um, frustrated because they'd love to give their time to help out. But there's, it's tough to volunteer during these times. So you see people doing wonderful things like driving meals and dropping them off for people. Um, helping, checking in on seniors. Um, there's a there's an amazing group in Toronto called Kitchen 24 now that's producing a couple thousand meals a day, and there we link them into CAA who is saying, hey, we have drivers that aren't as busy. Can we help out? So they're dropping those things off. But I think there, there's a lot of meaningful ways people can get involved and make a difference. Um, we know there's a lot of people that are hurting. And we're absolutely there for you. And that's the message, too. If your circumstances have changed um, because of this pandemic and you're hurting, you need food, you need support, mental health supports, reach out. We're here for you. And for those of you who are fortunate enough to have those supports, if you want to give back, we'd love for you to donate either to Blue Door or any one of the amazing charities that are out there right now doing this groundbreaking work. On Twitter, it's at Blue Door Support, the website bluedoor.ca. And when you click on the link to bluedoor.ca, there is a tab saying urgent help is needed through this COVID-19 crisis fund. What can people do to help Blue Door through this situation, Michael? Well, I, I think, of course, obviously donate, and we use those donations to buy uh, food, PPE equipment, um, as well staffing, of course, for us is, is trickier because if you have people that are not well, and just want to stay home as a precaution, uh, you know, it presents new challenges, right, uh, going forward. Uh, food drives for perishable food, um, that's always helpful, and you can drop, just drop that off or work with us. Um, if you want to dr- be a driver or you, you have some time to drive and help drop things off or do that, uh, that's appreciated as well. 
Michael, thank you for you and your staff. Continued great work, and uh, hopefully we can get through this in a, in a healthy, safe manner, and then maybe at the end of this, uh, revisit how we view the homeless and how we can support Blue Door Shelter to make sure that we reduce homelessness in the region. Yes, Jim, and listen, I want to say a huge thank you to you and the team at 105.9. I think we talk a lot about unsung heroes, of course, you know, um, our doctors, our nurses, our PSWs, our shelter workers, of course, but also those in the media who are bringing us the information we need to move forward. It's so important now more than ever. So thank you for all you do. It's the least I can do. Michael, a pleasure, my friend. Take care. You too. Well, the coronavirus has also changed how we grieve and how we mourn. Tina Cortez with the experience from one of our colleagues here at 105.9 The Region. Affectionately known as Fix-It Phil around here, Phil McCabe is our technical producer. And uh, Phil, first from your friends here at the station, our condolences on the loss of your grandmother. How are you doing? Oh. Uh- it's been a little weird for the first while, but uh, I think we as a family have come to terms with uh, with the loss of our loved one. So it's been challenging, but that's part of why I wanted to have this conversation, because we, we as a society shouldn't have to suffer alone. And so do you want to start by sharing a little bit about your grandmother's story? Oh, absolutely. So my grandmother had recently turned 88 in, uh, in March. Other than dementia, she was physically fine, uh, you know, the usual 88-year-old aches and pains. And then she contracted COVID-19 probably about uh, a week or so before she passed. And then her, all of her doctors were saying, you know what, she's had good physical health. She has no respiratory issues, no history of smoking, anything like that. So, you know, she's in the high percentage of possible recovery. And then about a couple of days after that is when her doctor explained to my aunt that, you know, she's now contracted pneumonia and it appears as though this is kind of her last day. So you, you should probably try and sort out what's happening next with her affairs. And in terms of what was happening next, how did that go? Were people allowed, were, were your family members permitted uh, to come to the hospital and, and spend the last days, hours, moments with her? Yes, my uh, my aunt, who has been taking care of Grandma for for years now, she was able to uh, to go into the hospital, and uh, actually the the nurses and staff there knew how important this was enough that they provided her the same level of PPE that they were given themselves, and she was able to spend the last three days of Grandma's life by her bedside. And although grandma was asleep for most of it, it was definitely reassuring for our family that she was able to have this person there with her for sure. But it was just a single person who was there with her. I'm sure there would have been others in the family who wanted to be there at this time. Oh, absolutely. Um, The impacts that my grandma had on our family, not just as the, the matriarch of our family, but as the the person that kind of brought us all together. She had uh, a way about her that made everyone happy, made everyone feel better with her around. So I know that myself and both my older brothers, my my cousins, my aunt, my uncles, my 
extended family and girlfriends and uh, sisters-in-law and basically everyone that came across Lorraine McCabe wanted to be there with her. But uh, the, the doctors set it up that, you know, they were already putting my aunt at risk, but they, they knew that she didn't want grandma suffering alone. So they, they allowed her in there. And were you able to see her in her last moments? Um, you know, was there any sort of live stream provided? Because we are hearing that some hospitals, some long-term care facilities are providing at least that for some extended family members. Uh, I personally wasn't allowed to. I, I know that they had connected with my aunt because she was the person handling all of her affairs. And they were able to, to set up a, a live stream and, and create what face-to-face connection were allowed in this current climate. But the, the reality was with grandma's dementia, she didn't fully understand what was happening, why she was looking at a video of people trying to talk to her. But I, I know... The, the positive spin on that is that hospitals are setting people up that they're able to at least try and connect with their family, even if, even if it's through the Internet. So when your grandmother did pass away, what was the visitation, the funeral, um, any sort of ceremony or celebration of life? What was that like? That was an incredibly surreal experience, I don't think any of us going into this COVID-19 pandemic expected things to transpire the way they did. But essentially what we had come up with as a family was we got together in a 15 person zoom meeting and just shared stories of grandma. And we all made a meal that was a favorite of hers that she always had ready for any guests that came into her home and just, enjoyed each other's company to the best of our ability while reminiscing about this person. And it it almost became a virtual wake of sorts that we were gathering to remember this person, but still keeping the distance that we have to, to try and prevent other people from having the same fate. And did this virtual wake, as you call it, did it provide you any comfort Yes and no. It it was absolutely a comfort to be able to to see the faces of my cousins and my my dad, even who I knew was suffering tremendously. The, the his mother was his favorite person in the history of people. But like as much as it was comforting to be able to interact with one another, it's a little it's a little uneasy to know that oh I can't hug. My, I can't hug my dad, who's now balling up because he he can't he couldn't even go see his mother in her last moments, and it, it was a very strange yet necessary thing to go through. I feel in in this current situation. Now, what about in terms of a, a funeral and that process? What was it like? Well, as of right now, I believe that they've set it up that uh, Grandma will be cremated and then uh, she's going to be buried with her late husband when we're able to all gather and and put her to rest where her plot is. Uh, from what I understand, I wasn't directly involved in the planning, but from what I've been told, the funeral director has been very welcoming to the idea of, okay, well, let's not do this right now because you want to be able to do it appropriately. You want to be able to do it with your family. 
So they, they've conceptualized how they're going to make this happen when we're all physically able to do it together. So without a doubt, COVID-19 has had an impact on every aspect of our lives and even our grieving and mourning. What do you want our listeners? What do what do you want our listeners to know then now? What was it like for you, for your family? What is your message? Uh, My message is that although some people think that this is an overreaction, some people think it's no worse than the common flu. Some people think that it's the the end is nigh and this is the worst thing to happen. The reality is we as a society should be taking these steps to try and flatten the curve. I know that there's so many advertisements saying that there's so many PSAs and so on, but if there was a way that we could have stopped the spread sooner, that we could have flattened the curve sooner, then perhaps my grandma wouldn't have contracted COVID and using myself or my family rather as the example, if we could have done something sooner, if we can continue to act diligently, then less people will suffer in the long run. There's already too many deaths, too many people affected by something that is preventable if we just stay home and do everything we can to stop the spread of this virus. Phil, we're sorry for your loss, and uh, we thank you for sharing your story and that of your grandmother. Take care of yourself. Likewise. Take care. For exclusive COVID-19 updates from York Region's Medical Officer of Health, go to 1059theregion.com. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.